Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We have been introduced a little bit to the categories of Tameh and Tahor. We've been talking about ritually pure and ritually impure. Um, people in a state of regularity are pure. When that is when life is dysregulated, um, one theory is by things that are related to death, because death being the opposite of life. Um, when when death is present in certain ways, then we, um, in natural ways, uh, like menstruation, ejaculation, all those things are natural things, but they, they cause ritual impurity um, because they have disrupted um, what, what is the normative regulated state homeostasis, if you will. Homeostasis is pure, is it you're pure. So things come in that disrupt that. Um, and when purity is disrupted, it has to be addressed. So in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, they took um, the spreading of impurity very seriously because, and we keep, I'll just keep saying it, um, because if the, if the Mishkan, if the central um, site of the cult becomes too, Im- if there's too much impurity, the divine presence can't be there because the divine presence is only pure. So, um, so there's this need to keep addressing the impurity of the people. Um, there's a concept of impurity can spread. And so there's contagion uh, also. We've had a uh, an interesting relationship to the idea of how they dealt with this when it is a physical affliction um, in the ancient world. Um, I think this year of COVID has helped us maybe think about it a little differently. <laughs> so um, we're talking this week, we're in um, the double Parsha, Tazria Metzora. So we're talking about Sara'at. We're talking about the disease that is translated as leprosy. It is not Hansen's disease, it is not leprosy. We know that because it goes away. Um, it is probably something like psoriasis. Some, so when we're talking about the skin, some kind of um, skin condition that is like psoriasis that, um, that the priest diagnoses and then the person is quarantined outside the camp because we're right now in Leviticus, which means we're in the, in the desert, we're in the Midbar. And so the person is quarantined outside of the camp until such time as the priest declares that the tzara'at is gone. So a couple of things I want to say about that. Um, We now understand the relationship to quarantine a lot better, I think, right? That quarantine is not bad. Quarantine is necessary. Quarantine is not a punishment. Quarantine is necessary. If you want to protect the health of the population and for them, stopping the spread of impurity was incredibly important for the health of the entire nation. Um, Then you have to quarantine when somebody has been diagnosed with something that renders them seriously impure. So Tzara'at was taken very seriously. Um, Notice as we read the text that the priest is the one who diagnoses Tzara'at. So there is no ritual impurity unless and until the priest diagnosis tsara'at the person is pure so it is the priest who decides that someone is ritually impure and that takes a lot of examination and sometimes repeated examination for the priest to make that determination 
So I want to start from the place because we're always trying to take ourselves out of our ethnocentricity, out of our Western understanding of medicine and the relationship to the patient. Um, I want us to instead put ourselves in the shoes of the ancient Israelites. And again, um, as you know, I'm using um, Tamar Kami, Rabbi, uh, Dr. Tamar Kamienkowski's comments uh, in the Wisdom Commentary Collection. Uh, her, she's the one who wrote the commentary on Leviticus. And she says... That And I'm going to read to you a little bit. Um, Leviticus 13 actually undermines popular contemporary attitudes toward diseases and bodily differences. Instead of encouraging the common tendency to look away with disgust, thus feeding fears about illness and disease, Leviticus 13 pushes individuals to pay attention to bodies, not to avert the gaze, but rather to require the gaze. The task of the priest is to do just that, to look, to examine in great detail. The root ra'ah, indicating to see, appears 39 times in this chapter. The text does not attach any stigma to these conditions. To the contrary, they provide a calm, thoughtful, and systematic exploration of each condition in detail. So I know where Bert's going to go. I know where he's going. So just... I'll get there, Bert. I promise I'll get there. So he's going to say, well, the rabbis came up with a whole list of reasons of why somebody might be punished with Sarat. Okay. The rabbis, see, I was right when I, the rabbis needed for there to be some kind of connection to punishment for this. Bless you. Um, they needed this to have a reason just like they needed in their own lives for there to be a reason for certain things. So we don't need that reason. I really stay away. I I used to teach a lot more about what the rabbis thought and what the rabbis did with this. I really stay away from it now um, because it really is not at all what the Israelite system was about. And it really communicates the wrong message. It's the wrong theology. It's the wrong message. Um, I do like that they blamed Sarat, um, very clever wordplay. They blamed it on gossip. Um, Cause I do think that is a serious issue and a serious problem. So I like, I like what sin they picked, but, um, but in general, relating this to sin, I just don't find very helpful. Um, the, the rabbis did that's fine for them. So what, what Dr. Kamienkowski is saying is we tend to think of this as an aversion to what we'll call the leper an aversion to that person and banishing them and looking away from them and turning away from them. And what she's asking us to do is actually see this really differently. That's what we do. We put sick people in hospitals. We don't wanna see it. We don't wanna smell it. We don't wanna be around it. Until recently, we put dying people in the hospital. Until recently, we put older people who were struggling at all away in nursing homes. And we don't wanna see it. We don't wanna see aging. We don't wanna see death. We don't wanna see dying. That's a Western approach to illness and death, not Israelite. The priest is not a doctor. The priest is a priest. So you took the holiest person, the person who's connected to holiness the most, and Barry, universal health care. Yeah, exactly. Every Israelite had the opportunity to be diagnosed by the priest. And the priest was the one who was connected to the cult and to the holy, and to keeping things running in the realm of Kedusha, in the realm of holiness. 
and purity. That's the person who deals very closely with the person who's got Sarat. That that is a, that is saying something, right? That that that's the person that the person is brought to. That's the person the patient sees, and it, and it's not about cure. The priest is not going to cure them. That's not the point. That will happen on its own. And then the priest's job is to bring them back into the fold, to bring them back into the camp with a ritual. So we can look at the text and rather than going, ew, we can say, all right, so um, this means the priest had to pay some pretty close attention to what was happening in order to know whether or not something is tzara'at. Right. All right. So here are some examples of that. If a man loses the hair of his head and becomes bald, tahor, he's pure. If he loses the hair on the front part of his head and becomes bald at the forehead, tahor. But if a white affection streaked with red appears on the bald part in the front or at the back of the head, it is a scaly eruption that is spreading over the bald part in the front or the back of the head, the priest shall examine him. Here we go with this verb, the ra'a'oto hakohen. The priest will see him. The doctor will see you now. That's exactly the word used here in Hebrew. The priest will see him, will look at him. If the swollen affection on the bald part in the front or the back of his head is white streaked with red, like the leprosy of body, skin in appearance, saruahu, tame. Now the priest declares it's tzara'at, and this person is tame, is impure. The priest shall pronounce him tame. He has the affection on his head. Now, look what has to happen. You start to lose your hair as a man. If there's something weird going on, you, ha- you go see the priest. Because what if this is tzara'at? As for the person with a leprous affection, his clothes shall be rent, his head shall be left bare, and he shall cover over his upper lip, and he shall call out tame. Tame, impure, impure. We have no idea exactly what this is about. It's not explained. He shall be unclean as long as the disease is on him. So the priest does not treat it. The priest does not treat sara'at. The priest diagnoses sara'at. And, and he will be tame for as long as the disease is on him. Being tame, he shall dwell apart. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. When an eruption, when an eruptive affection occurs in a cloth of wool or linen fabric, in the warp or in the woof of the linen or the wool or in a skin or in anything made of skin, if the affection in the cloth or the skin in the warp or the woof or in any article of skin is streaky green or red, it is an eruptive affection. It shall be shown to the priest. So what we see here is that it can be, um, Sarad can contaminate uh, uh, wool and thread and yarn and material and skin, meaning like a water skin, um, just like it can a person. So for them, there was not an understanding that whatever caused the eruption on a person's skin was different from what causes mold, mildew, those kinds of of things in uh, in material and or on the walls of homes. They did not understand that that those were different causes. For them, the cause is the same. It is tzara'at. Now, 
Dr. Kamienkowski points out that who would have been dealing with the warp and the woof of stuff? Who would have been dealing with that? Women. Women would have been the ones um, who would have noticed if there was Sarat on the warp or the woof because they were the ones warping and woofing, right? It was the women who were the weavers. So, um, so there is an alternative translation of part of this, uh, trying to fix um, the grammar in a way that, that points to that. But in any case, uh, um, the priest, after examining the affection, shall isolate the affected article for seven days. On the seventh day, he shall examine the affection, right? So again, very close attention by the priest to what's happening. If the affection has spread in the cloth, whether in the warp or the woof, or in the skin, for whatever purpose the skin may be used, the affection is a malignant eruption. It is unclean. The cloth in which the affection is found shall be burned, for it is a malignant eruption. It shall be consumed in fire. So if it doesn't go away in seven days, now it's considered ruined, right? The garment, the piece of fabric is ruined. But if the priest sees that the affection in the cloth, whether in warp or in woof or in any article of skin has not spread, the priest shall order the affected article washed and he shall isolate it for another seven days. And if after the affected article has been washed, the priest sees that the affection has not changed color and it has not spread, it is unclean, it shall be consumed in fire, it is a fret, whether on its inner side or its outer side. But if the priest sees that the affected part after it has been washed is faded, he shall tear it out from the cloth or skin, whether in warp or in woof. And if it occurs again in the cloth or in any article of skin, it is a wild growth. The affected article shall be consumed in fire, meaning it's kind of vulnerable, if you will, to, to this affection. If, however, the affection disappears from the cloth, blah, 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 it shall be washed again and it shall be declared tahor. This is what's done for wool, linen, skin, all that stuff. Okay. So you can see that it takes a lot of attention and focus and examination and time by the priest to deal with this. We have to assume if people didn't want to just throw something away, it was because it was expensive. So it's one thing if you if you see it in uh, material in your home that's, you know, a napkin, a cloth napkin, right? That's that's kind of easy. But what if it's in your couch or your mattress? Then what? For a lot of people, you're talking about a seriously expensive thing to have burned, right? So um, so that's why we can assume it took this kind of attention for things that are cloth, linen, or skin, because they would have been things that were um, expensive and would have been hard to part with and just give over to be burned. All right. God speaks to Moshe saying, this shall be the ritual for a leper at the time the leper is to be cleansed. When it has been reported to the priest, the priest shall go outside the camp. If the priest sees that the leper has been healed of his scaly affection, the priest shall order two live clean birds cedar wood, crimson stuff, and hyssop to be brought for him who is to be cleansed. The priest shall order one of the birds slaughtered over fresh water in an earthen vessel, and he shall take the live bird along with the cedar wood, the crimson stuff, and the hyssop and dip them together with the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. 
He shall then sprinkle it seven times on he who is to be cleansed of the eruption and cleanse him. And he shall set the live bird free in the open country. The one to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair and bathe in water. Then he shall be clean. After that, he may enter the camp, but he must remain outside his tent seven days. On the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair of head, beard and eyebrows When he has shaved off all his hair, he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Then he shall be clean. So we have a three-step process here. This is step two. On the eighth day, you shall take two male lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish, three-tenths of a measure of choice flour with oil mixed in for a meal offering and one log of oil. These shall be presented before Yudhe with the man to be cleansed at the entrance of the tent of meeting by the priest who performs the cleansing. And I would translate this person, not man, because women could get it too. So ish, I think here just means human, um, not particularly a man. But the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it with the log of oil as a guilt offering. Asham, in case something caused this, that the person doesn't know about, and he shall elevate them as an elevation offerings. It's a tnufa before Yudhe The lamb shall be slaughtered at the spot in the sacred area where the sin offering and burnt offering are slaughtered. For the asham, like the sin offering, goes to the priest, right? So the priest gets something for all of this time and attention he's been spending, checking on this person and whether or not it's getting better, whether it's getting worse, whether it stayed the same, doing all this stuff. So he, the priest gets you know, part of this offering, the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and the priest shall put it on the ridge of the right ear of him, of the one who's being cleansed and on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of the right foot. The priest shall then take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand. And the priest will dip his finger in the oil that is in the palm of his left hand and sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times before Yodhe Some of the oil left in his palm shall be put by the priest on the ridge of the right ear, on the thumb of the right hand, on the toe of the right foot, over the blood of the guilt offering that's already in those places. The rest of the oil in his palm, the priest shall put on the head of the one being cleansed. Thus, the priest shall make expiation for the person before Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. Remember, this is the verb chiper. We're not exactly positive what chiper means, um, but... We'll, we'll use expiation. The priest shall then offer the sin of offering and make, shall offer the sin offering and make expiation for the one being cleansed of being Tameh. Last, the Olah, right? The Holocaust will be slaughtered. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the meal offering on the altar and the priest shall make expiation for the person. Then the person shall be clean. But we have a case where somebody might not be able to afford all of those things. That's a pretty expensive process. Talk about Barry, universal health care, right? Some people can't afford health care. They can't afford the drug. They can't afford, you know, what it's going to take to get well and come back into the community. And so, because this is about re-entry into the community, the, the, the tzara'at's gone, or else the person's not allowed to come back. The tzara'at's gone already. This is about bringing someone back into the fold once they are healed. This is not about healing, This is not a magic ritual to heal this person. This is what's required to bring the person out of the state of being Tameh into the state of being Tahor. So two turtle doves and two pigeons, depending on the person's means, 
the one, uh, these are not altar birds, by the way. These are not birds that are usually called for uh, to be sacrificed. So this is a special ritual using turtle doves or pigeons, um, which which, you know, vary in price because it's depending on the person's means, but it's way cheaper than two, whatever, two lambs and a ewe. On the eighth day of the person's cleansing, the, uh, the person will bring them to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting before yod he And all of this same stuff is going to happen, right? The right ear, the thumb, and the big toe of the right foot. Again, we get the oil ritual, um, again, it's placed on on the person, the oil. Uh, they are hereby. When you enter the land of Canaan, I give you as a possession and I inflict an eruptive plague upon a house in the land you possess. Now we're going to go into uh, what to do with houses. All right. So I want to look at a couple of things. First of all, y- y'all have heard me teach this before, many of you. And you've heard my interpretation of some of this. And I'm going to close, as always, with Tears of Firestone's piece, because I always find it super, super powerful um, each year in a slightly different way. Um, but I want to look at this language, because for, for the first time I was, I was this year, I read a, an interpretation of this um, that is really interesting to me. So the, the language that's used about, about this eruption the language used is nega. So, so if you look here, what is the priest looking at? The priest, look at verse three. The ra'aha kohen et hanega, or habasar. And the priest will look at the nega, at the blemish, at the, at the bad thing, at, at the thing that's not normal whatever, however we would talk about that. They're calling it an affection. Well, what else would we use? We might use infection, right? We might use, so think of words that are about something that's, that's not healed and normal. Be'or habasar, in the skin of the flesh, the se'ar, and in the hair, banega. So this word nega, lavanumar eha nega, so this word nega um, appears over and over and over and over. And where do we see this word um, elsewhere in Torah? It turns out there's only one other place where uh, we see nega used. Um, I'm trying to stop sharing. Where do we see nega used? Um, we see it in the tenth in the tenth plague. We see it in in striking down the firstborn children of Israel of uh, Egypt before the Israelites leave. Um, so, so this person uh, and I and I have a sheet for you with all this on it. Um, so he, his name, uh, the person who brought it forward for me is Rabbi David Foreman. And he's, he draws some interesting parallels and he says, all right, so that's just a linguistic connection between Tzara'at and um, the story of the Exodus from Egypt. But what really happened in the Exodus from Egypt? We have this bird ritual where two birds um, are, are dealt with, one and this is part of the ritual. This is not the sacrifices. This is not those birds. This is for everybody. Everybody has to bring two birds and the priest breaks the neck of one, right? And 
drains the blood and dips the blood of the second one that's alive in that blood and sets it free to fly away. All right, we're going to talk about that. And you know my interpretation of that and Tears of Firestone's interpretation of that. Those of you who've learned with me before, um, we're going to see it again. But, um, but so let's, let's hold off on, on the spiritual meaning of it for a second. And just he, what he does is very interesting. He says, so one dies and one goes free. They are twins. They are, they are parallel. He said, well, that's exactly what happens in the 10th plague. The firstborn of Egypt, so the, you know, the, the firstborn to a family would have been the one to whom the family transmitted all of their knowledge, all of the family story, most of their wealth. All of that would have gone to the firstborn, the one who kind of carries the family's identity, becomes the leader of the family. That whole group of leaders were gone from nega, from this nega of the 10th plague, gone, dead. Egypt's future in some ways died. The baby died because um, he because he he likens it to the fact that we're going to get impurity from childbirth uh, discussed here. So, you know, it's like he says there were two babies in the womb. One died. And what happened to Israel? They go free. They live. Not only do they go free and live, they become a nation. That moment is the birth, not to quote directors here, but that's the birth of a nation. So as Egypt its generation of in, who was who going to inherit their culture, their, their familial wealth, all that. They died and Israel became born as a, as a people, as a nation with a new future. So, and he continues the parallel. He says, and what happens? All of this is poured into what? Water, right? This is poured into water. Hello, like, <laughs> so what do you think happens Right. How do the how do the Israelites become born? The waters part. How do the Egyptians, the rest of the Egyptians die in the water? And he says, well, what about blood? There's this blood business. Well, hello. Remember that? How did we put the blood on the doorpost at Pesach at the story of the Exodus? Mehmet gets it. Mehmet's nodding. How did we do that? Oh, yeah. With a bunch of hyssop. You took the hyssop and dipped it in the in the um, blood and put it on the doorpost, right? Okay, so I've never before put that all together. <laughs> There's a lot of parallels between this nega and the nega of leaving Egypt and the nega of what happens to these two nations, to Egypt and to Israel. And again, it's mythology. I'm not talking about history. I'm talking about our sacred mythology seems to line those things up. And so, of course, the question would be, well, what's the connection between nega there and nega here? And um, you know, I, I don't know that I completely buy his chiddush, Um in terms of you know where he goes with it, what he what he deems it you know to mean, but I I do think there is this element for sure of um, of all the things that were present in the tenth plague story and the leaving of the Israelites from Egypt and the drowning of the Egyptians, the birth of the people Israel as a people. Um, there is something to that, and the fact that all those elements are here too. I'll show you what he says. At the fa- at face value, can you see my cursor? Yes, at face value, Egypt looks more or less the same now as it did before, but it loses its child leaders. 
it loses its ability culturally to hold itself together. It is just a fragment of itself now. That night, the nationhood of Israel was born and the nationhood of Egypt began to collapse. Two entities, as it were, came out of the womb. One entity, the nation of Israel, successfully comes into life. The nation of Egypt begins to die. How then forevermore do we purify the mitzorah? What does it mean to purify the mitzorah, the person who has sarat? The mitzorah is dead, but he's not just dead. He's like a stillborn. He is someone cut off from the community. How do you bring him back in? He has to be reborn. He who was, so to speak, a victim of a failed birth process needs to re-experience a successful birth process. The birth process we all experienced by which we came to be a nation. When he experiences that, he rejoins us and becomes fully alive. So his, his connection is that the person has been like someone dead because they've been cut off from the people. They're all alone. They're outside the camp. They're no longer part of the community. So that's the same in the ancient world. That's the same as being dead because you're toast without the community in the ancient world, right? We still don't do very well. We're learning (laughs) being cut off from everybody else, right? (laughs) Being alone for too long with our own company or the company of the person we somehow chose to live with. So um, that, so that, that state He's saying it is like being dead and, and the person has to be reborn and brought back to life in order to fully thrive again in the community and truly be part of the community. And that means they have to go through the ritual that has the elements of all of the things that were present when we became born as a people. I think that is a really beautiful interpretation. And I'll tell you why. We tend to think of illness as an individual experience. And we, of course, each of us experience illness, brokenness, you know, and I mean physical brokenness, weakness, um, all those things that make us less than who we, how we function when we are normal in a state of regularity in terms of our bodies. It is, it is individual because each of us has to confront death. Each of us has to confront the possibility we may not get better. Each of us has to deal with what it means to hate how that looks my C-section scar, I mean, they filleted me like a fish. I'm cut from stem to stern. Up, down, people. Like, it is nasty. It took me a very long time to live in a body that had been mutilated. That, that process, only we can do that. Only we can deal with what it means to confront a changed body, a different body, an aging body. A broken body, right? My hip like was not functional. I had to have it taken out and replaced with a fake one, right? So the only we can face that and hold that and deal with that. It is an individual and sometimes deeply lonely process dealing with changes to our bodies, changes to our health, um, challenges to our health, challenges to our mortality. We can only do that alone, And so I think in in this case, Torah understands that the person is isolated. Yes, because of contagion. But I think Torah also recognizes that, that it's an individual process. So what's the best way to bring someone out of that when they're coming back into regularity, when the cancer's in remission, when treatment is over, when the hip has healed, when you finally realize you, you're not going to win any beauty contests in a swimsuit. So who cares about a C-section scar? You have a beautiful child, right? 
how do we bring someone back out of that lonely individual place of facing and holding and dealing with that? We, we do a ritual that's Dafka, the opposite of the individual. We do a ritual that was the birth of us as a people. We have the person go through a ritual that, that happened when we were becoming a community, when we were becoming people who belonged to each other. How beautiful is that? And what do we do now? What do we do for people now? For them to feel like they are coming back into, not just coming back into, they are going through a transformation ritual, a rebirth ritual. If we look at it that way, then what are we doing for people who, who often long for some way to acknowledge that with ritual and powerfully have the person who's connected to the center of the community, the priest, the rabbi, to have that person there as a witness and to, and to actually perform the ritual. That is, that's a really powerful thing. I think that's a really powerful um, statement about our responsibility for bringing people not only back, but bringing them over and through a rebirth because um, you're different on the other side of that experience. And I'm looking at your faces. I see y'all. I know you. I know your stories. I know how many of you have been there. I know how many of you have struggled and have faced either a loved one's illness or your own, you know, changing relationship to health and, and wellness. And, and, and I know, and I know what it took for you all to hold that. And I know what it took for you to come back from that. And I feel like Torah really seems to get that, that we need ways to, to rebirth um, and, and, re, and, and, and in that sense, incorporate all of that into the new person that we are. Because we're a new person when we've gone through something like that. And it doesn't happen just once. Um, you know, it happens many times. I'm reading this, this book, this new book by the guy who wrote Walking the Bible, because my RLI cohort, several of us, Several of them are reading it and they're loving it. And it's about life transitions. Um, Bruce Feel, I think his name is. Um, he wrote Abraham. You know, so so um, I don't want to lose my train of thought. Um, so he, you know, he talks about the fact that this is, this is how we become who we are. It's not the linear, you grow up, you, nah, nah, you date, you go to college, you get married, you have a baby, you have a career. That is not how we become who we are. We become who we are through major life disruptions. It is what he calls life quakes that make us who we are, that shape the story of our lives that we tell. We don't tell the story of, oh, yeah, I went to high school. Yeah, I got up every day. Got on the boat. We don't really tell that story unless we're asked to talk about your elementary school. What do we talk about? We talk about the moments of disruption, the moments when we, be- we had to do something else, something different. And we became someone different, not, not completely different, of course not, but we become different. And that, that, he says, is what gives our lives shape is the disruptions. And I think Sarat is, is, is an acknowledgement at the biblical level of disruption. And, and it, it was done and handled with great care. And, and we suck in the West at holding some of these things with great care, right? Somebody loses a child. Someone loses, God forbid, a spouse early, young. 
People don't want to deal with that person. Not only are we not great at dealing with it, people, people shun them, right? They don't know how to talk to them. They don't know what to say. And so they go the other direction if they see them in the grocery store. And somebody who's been seriously sick, somebody who you can tell is going through chemo. We are terrible at knowing how to hold that. And Toto says, no, people, that's Dafka. That's especially when you need to pay very close attention to each other. You need to care for each other. You need to check. You need to check in. You need to examine. You need to be present and, and keep checking until the person's ready to come back and then acknowledge that in some really uh, important and significant way. All right, so I'm going to stop talking. I, that was a lot. Um, and I'll let y'all see what you want to say. So Judith? Yes. We have one ritual it's the only one I can think of when someone has lost a spouse or someone after Shiva is finished, the rabbi takes the person and walks them up and down the, the street or around the block to welcome them back into the world. But are there any others? I think mikvah is probably another one. And, and people, people are reconstructing mikvah to, to be that. So, you know, a lot of people, when they finish treatment, they go to mikvah. If they've, you know, survived a particular, you know, tragedy or, uh, or accident, you know, or whatever they do mikvah. Um, so that's, that's one thing that in our time is becoming. Um, but can we create a ritual that, that would, I know we do have a ritual now for stillborn babies to grieve for a baby that's lost, but can we create a ritual for people who have, been sunk into that abyss and are coming back out of it? I think we need to spend some energy on it. Um, what, I, what, what we do currently, you know, what I like to do if, if the person agrees to it is to bench Gomel. So we have a blessing that we say when we escape danger. It used to be, it used to be that if you took a long journey and you come back from that long journey because journeys were inherently dangerous, you, the person was called to Torah the next Shabbos and they were given an aliyah. And of course, you, you make, we make a mishaberach during an aliyah you know, or name a baby during an aliyah. The other thing you can do is the person can bench gomel. So they're given an aliyah and then they say this blessing that they, they realize that, that good has been bestowed on them. And the response of the community is, yes, good has been bestowed on you. So may it be, you know, continue to be bestowed on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a way to ignite. You don't have to say what it is. You escaped, but it's a way for the person publicly to acknowledge there has been some kind of disruption and they have come out of it. Okay. Um, and it's still a very, it's a very powerful ritual. Um, we, people don't know about it. So people don't right. request it a lot. Um, but I, I offer it to people um, and you know, and we bench Gomel. So um, we, we don't do it as part of an Aliyah because we don't have a communal KI Shabbat morning service, um, but we do it Friday night and have someone bench Gomel in front of the open arc uh, on a Friday night, which I think is just as powerful. Aliyah used to be the way people connected, but I think, you know, f- things get reconstructed um, all the time. So are we doing enough? Are we doing enough to... I, I don't think so. I mean, it's just, it's just me. I don't, I don't think so. But I, I, will, I will say, I think... KI is a wonderful example of why it's better to be part of a community in our society than not, because we do do a pretty good job 
of checking in with each other. When we know somebody's struggling, we know somebody's ill, we know somebody's lost someone. I do think this community is good at calling, you know, or dropping a note or dropping dinner off or checking in. You know, I think, um, and it makes a huge difference. And I can tell you that because the people come tell me, they don't know who to tell from Kin Caring always. They don't know who to tell. Thank you. So they tell me. So I hear it all the time, how much it meant to people that they are part of this community and that they felt seen, that they felt held, that they felt acknowledged um, in, in a way that they know is not happening for people who are not part of intentional communities um, like this right. one. So, um, so in that sense, I, I am proud. I'm so proud you know, uh, of, of what we've built here. David? Amy? Oh, uh, Amy. David, then Bob? Amy, um, I guess uh, <clears throat> this has been a wonderful uh, session, but somehow to me, I think all of us have lived in Zoom hell for the last year. And I really think that coming back to having a live session is going to be that moment of expiation when we emerge out of this and into the world that's sort of regular, you know, and, and so that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, me too. Um, so know that we're beginning Friday nights now, um, starting May 1. We will now be having in-person services on Friday night. Um, we have a limit given our space. We have to, sp we, this is not us. This is the city, the county, we have to follow regulations or we will be shut down. The regulations are six feet apart, sitting by household, masked, and um, no and social distancing. So no mingling afterwards, no going up to people and talking to them in the sanctuary during the service, and people leave immediately afterwards. Um, we're going to give you Oneg to go. We're going to give everybody a cookie. Um, <laughs> seriously, we're going to give everybody a cookie. I suppose, and, um, I suppose it's better than nothing but that's not my idea of emerging from Zoom hell. No, I totally agree. But I'm, I'm wanting to let everyone know this because people are going to hear something and not know what, what, what they're talking about. So I want to be very clear with y'all so that you can spread the right word. So it's going to be maximum 50 people, maximum. Then um, the way it's going to be handled is a um, email system where you email a request, you'll be getting the form. The form will be sent to you. You fill out the request and we're going to honor the requests in the following order. First, immediate household of a bar or bat mitzvah that's happening the next day. They get top priority. Second, shloshim, people who are mourning a death of 30 days. Yartzite, so people who are coming to say Kaddish for a loved one. Um, and then after that, um, first come, first serve behind those people with however many slots are left. Once it's full, it's full. Um, so you will either get an email if you make a request saying you have a seat in the sanctuary, blah, blah, blah. We'll do a temperature check, all that stuff. Um, or, or an email that says you, we're full, I'm sorry, but we'll, we'll be happy to put you down for next week. And that kind of bumps up the priority of that person getting something the next service. Cause that's who's, who's after first come first serve is people who wanted to get in and couldn't. Yes. It's confusing. I get that, but we are here um, where our staff is ready to walk you through, um, walk you through the whole process. So our, our staff are ready to fill out the forms for you. Adam's going to be there. 
and he's happy to fill out a form, you know, so whatever help you need, we're, we're ready uh, to do that for you. So, um, so that's starting in May. We'll see. Um, the, the regulations are changing all the time. So hopefully, you know, they'll change uh, in a good way. They'll change in our favor and we can start to relax some of the, um, some of the things we're going to have to do uh, to start. All right. Sorry. That was Amy, long, but I needed to say that. Bob? Yeah. Um, two things. Number one, you might want to consider vaccination status in terms of, um, uh, okay, that's a no. Um, uh, number two, um, the issue that you raised with uh, uh, people not wanting to confront other people um, with illness or having gone through death, that's actually, you see that in physicians as well. Um, uh, we had the opportunity, the, the sad opportunity of being patients when um, uh, our newborn died in hospital. And we were avoided by everybody um, it, while, my, you know, while we were in hospital. Um, and I teach the residents and junior faculty about the importance of working through this need to, to avert and to work through it and to reach out to people. But it's a function of people you wouldn't expect um, to be like that. Right. So if it happens with physicians, kalva chomer, as the rabbis would say, how much more so? You know, do do lay people need to be aware of of our tendency, right, to do that? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Bob, for lifting that up. Um, so, Margot, Bert, and Sarah. Okay, I have a lot of uh, things to add at this moment, and I think this was a wonderful presentation today. Not that the others are not, and <laughs> I didn't say that. So don't look at me that way. Anyway. Um, I was just thinking within the last few days, and it and it's been brought to mind today with the Torah uh, reading and presentation that uh, many years ago, a lot of years ago, when Bert died, my my first husband, um, we were at the hospital, and a very good friend of mine came to the hospital, and that was I don't know if George is here today, but that was Barbara. Walcon, George's wife, and was there when Bert was at the end of his life. And I always felt that that might be an imposition to the family. And it taught me the lesson of how supportive that felt to be at my side when that situation was taking place. And it really, it I, I think to myself and would like to do it for other people. And it's still that little creeping thought comes in. Oh, would they really want to be with their family, et cetera. But actually Barbara taught me another way. And I tried to, to do that for people this time. So, so Margo so important um, that sometimes the, the way we learn the best is from like just you just illustrated a beautiful example of when it happens to us when those major life quakes happen to us what did we want said to us and what did we not want said to us and to really take that in and um and push ourselves even past our own comfort zone right to to do what we learned 
um, that. So that's a beautiful, beautiful lived example. Um, and may their memories be for a blessing, those that, that we've named. Um, and uh, who, I said Bert and then Sarah. Yeah, uh, two things. Uh, bouncing off what Margot said, uh, one of the major Jewish mitzvot, of course, is the uh, Hacholim, is to visit the sick. And it says, I think of the Talmud, it says somewhere, just as God visits the sick, we should visit the sick. And that's a way for us to be holy. And it doesn't just mean physically visit them, but visit them in, 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 in important other ways. The other thing, uh, I think the power of benching Gomel uh, is not just the community, although that's very important, but also expressing thanks and acknowledging that healing very often comes from a force that we don't quite understand and we quite can't touch. And we say a medicine healed us, or we say a doctor healed us, or in some cases we say it got better all by itself. And the process of being thankful, which is connected with humility, is, uh, I think, very healing one psychologically for the person. Thanks, Bert. Yeah, to, to really rest in gratitude um, when we do come out of something, right, is a really important um, component of growth, um, is, is really being in touch with gratitude. Sarah? I'm very thankful for a phone call that was made by Judith. That phone call, I think it was early February or January, asked me, and I didn't really know her, asked me if I had gotten our shots. And I hadn't even thought about it because I knew that my doctor didn't have them. And Judith had figured out how I could get a shot. And she didn't really know me, but she took the time to call me and take care of me getting a shot with Itzik. And I didn't know until after I got my shot how uplifting it was the minute I got it. I felt much safer and a lot of gratitude that Judith, who, with whom I did not have an intimate relationship, but forever will, that she took the time to call and see if I'd gotten a shot. And that, that's a lesson in how to be brave and community-like. Thank you, Sarah, for another beautiful lived example of what it means to belong to each other. Yes. Um, it doesn't mean we have to know each other well. It doesn't mean we like each other. It means <laughs> we belong to one another. Uh, and in the language of, um, you know, Danielle Hartman, that we are encumbered by one another. It mattered to Judith whether or not you had a shot because she knew what that does. You didn't, but she did. Right. And um, she felt encumbered. And, and he uses that in a, in a good way that we are, we choose to be encumbered by one another, that she wasn't going to rest because it was going to bug her. She's encumbered by our seniors who might not have known how to figure out the system to get a shot. And that that encumbrance is what gives our life shape and meaning. Um, and that we choose this, we don't have to do this, but we choose to be encumbered by one another. And that's what community means. 
Um, and that's a, so these are so many great examples of that and of calling each other out in really good ways. Um, Maxime. Oh, right. I was going to ask, um, I think Bert was kind of talking about this, but um, yeah, when you can't physically show up for somebody that, you know, is sick or, or dying, how, how I guess spiritually can you show up for them and support them? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a tough one, right? Because like Bert said, we don't really understand how most of this works. So I'm um, holding people in our thoughts and prayers, I think is, I believe somehow on some level does something that I don't understand. Um, so, you know, I pray for people who are, I know, in a really hard place and or those who are dying. Um, and if we can't be there physically, I, I think a phone call, a note, um, those things really go a long way. Um, I often can't be there physically. I mean, this is a huge congregation, um, but no one has ever said it wasn't deeply meaningful that I took the time to pick up the phone and say, how are you? Or I'm just thinking, right. I know this is a really hard time. Um, no one said, how come you didn't come in? Per-? You know, like, so it's, I think it's really powerful just for people to feel acknowledged, not, I don't mean acknowledged, but like to, to feel seen and, and that they're, that they're held and that they don't just disappear in their pain. Um, but they are truly seen and someone notices and is going to witness what's happening for them. So any way you can express that to people, I think is really important. Um, and like I said, praying for holding people when I'm in a state of meditation or prayer or Friday night, you know, those kind those moments in front of the ark with a bar about mitzvah. I, I hold a lot of people with me in those moments, you know, that I'm carrying um, with me. Cause it's, I think there's something that we don't understand, but it not only, hopefully it shifts something positive their way, but, or supportive their way. But um, what I know is that it changes me, right. That I'm clear about. Cause I have evidence for that because <laughs> I live in this body. So um, I know that it changes me to care about other people that way and makes me a much different person than I'd be if I were a banker. I want to share with you the tears of Firestone piece. That's just, it just touches me every time we just came through, through Yom HaShoah. We just came through Holocaust Remembrance Day uh, and remembering those who fell to, uh, to both found and defend the state of Israel um, so, that, so, so that's, we're always studying this Parsha around then. So she has some stuff she wrote before, but but here's the part I want to pick up at. And she's talking about the ritual to bring a mitzvah back into the camp. <clears throat> These are our shamanic rituals. And the one that we have for coming back into the camp to bring our riches back into the machaneh has to do with two birds, a cedar branch, crimson wool, and hyssop along with running water. Birds are a symbol of the soaring human spirit, the spirit that's alive within us. Notice that we take two. One is saved and one is killed. Why is that? The one that's killed has to do with the part of our spirit, which has to be exchanged, sacrificed, so that we can fly free. In order to soar, in order to really have mochin de godlut expanded consciousness, some part of us must be sacrificed. Each one of us knows this in our own personal lives, and we certainly know it as a people, as a nation. On the way to being here now, renewing, reconstructing Judaism, we have suffered an incredible loss. One of our birds, the twin bird, has died, and on its wings, come us. 
And having survived this loss, we know that we are never going to be the same. When we have come to consciousness, we know that we are inalterably changed by this loss. Our twin soul, perhaps the innocence in us, or the people that we had to leave in order to be where we are now, is gone. We are marked. And so the Torah tells us in its deep wisdom that our wings are dipped in the blood of our twin soul. That blood is on our wings as we soar. But we do soar. And we're lifted off into the fields to fly freely. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.